Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt Grimsley, as uh, Matt Guzzi introduced earlier. Uh, I am an Anglican pastor. There wasn't another sign to give that away. Uh, I'm a church planter here in Charlotte. We're planting a church called Apostles Anglican Church, and actually our launch Sunday is coming up on September 10th. And so we're about to, we're about to open up the doors and see what happens. So uh, as, since we've been in Charlotte, uh, Hope Community Church has been dear friends of mine. I'm a fan of what you guys do, and so it's an honor for me to be here uh, to, to worship with you and to preach to you today. I understand you've been spending your summer in the Ten Commandments. That's correct, right? You've been walking through each of the commandments. Uh, and congratulations, you've reached the end of that. You're about to complete the course today. We're going to focus on the Tenth Commandment. And I had the opportunity to preach uh, a, a series a few years ago on the Ten Commandments, and I entitled it Ten Ways to Be Free. Ten Ways to Be Free. Because that's what these commandments are. Hopefully, throughout the series, you've been exploring how God's law actually leads you to freedom. When I did the series, I quoted frequently from a guy by the name of Tim Keller. Tim Keller says this. He said, true freedom is not the absence of constraints, but finding the right ones, those that fit our nature and liberate us. Right? That's a challenge to our modern notions of freedom, isn't it? Freedom is not the absence of constraints. True freedom is finding the right ones, the ones that fit our nature, the ones that can actually liberate us. That's what these commandments are, from the God who created us, from the one who understands what human flourishing should look like so that it can lead us into the freedom of it. But it's also ten ways to be free because you've got to remember the original context, right? It's not an accident that these commandments came in Exodus 20 directly on the heels of what? God's great deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. They were enslaved, they were locked up, and now they're redeemed, they're liberated, and they're given these laws to show them what it means to be free. Right? You're no longer a slave. Here's what it means to be the free people of God. You're free to love God and your love neighbor. So if we translate that for us into the New Testament, so we, we who have been delivered from slavery to sin and death by an even greater exodus in Christ, now, we come back to these laws to show us what it looks like to live a grateful life, a free life. These truly are ten ways to be free. You remember that old game, uh, old, old game show called Name That Tune? You guys remember that, right? This, this show, Name That Tune, the whole object of the game was to guess the tune in as few notes as possible. So the contestants were like, I can name that tune in seven notes or whatever else, you know, and that's, that's the, whole, the whole bit. Friends, the Ten Commandments is like God saying, I can name what human flourishing and freedom looks like in ten words. Ten Commandments, the, the Decalogue, this is what this is, ten words. And so today we come to this last commandment, the Tenth Commandment, which is, hopefully you're going to see, is, a, is an incredibly fitting conclusion to the whole, actually. Because it's going to be, the command is going to be against the sin of coveting. And so the opposite of, it, of that is the freedom of of contentment. That's what we're going to talk about today, the freedom of contentment. But you've got to be careful with this commandment. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said that coveting is the sin of the upright. Sin of the upright, the, the decent, the respectable people, those who might have come through the other, the other commandments unscathed. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't been lying in court recently, right? If you floated through that, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, and then you come to coveting. And coveting catches us all. 
every one of us. That's because coveting is about our desires, not just our deeds. It's about our attitude, not just our actions. Like some of these other commands can be prosecuted in a court of law, but coveting is prosecuted in the heart. And that's why Luther said it's the sin of the upright, because it could remain hidden, couldn't it? Out of sight, deep in the recesses of our hearts. You might not even see this law being broken. I want you to see how important this is, because the 10th commandment reminds us that all sin begins with the desires of our hearts. This is where it starts. Think, about, think with me about the story of King David. Remember, he broke the eighth commandment one time by stealing another man's wife. And he broke the seventh commandment one time by sleeping with this woman and getting her pregnant. And he broke the sixth commandment one time by murdering her husband to cover it up. That's, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of stuff. Do you know how it began? By breaking the tenth commandment. Because he coveted his neighbor's wife, as he watched her from the roof of his palace. You see, all sin begins with the desires of our hearts. And so that's what the 10th commandment is going to lead us to confront today, these hidden desires in our hearts. But so that, so that it can lead us, it can set us free. It can lead us to the freedom of contentment. In Philippians chapter 4, the apostle Paul wrote that he had learned the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. He wrote this, mind you, while he was in prison. He said, I've learned the secret of contentment. Don't you want that? I know I do. That no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, whether in plenty or in want, in joy or in sorrow, wherever you find yourself, that you would know the secret of contentment. It will be well with your soul. You could have gratitude still. Man, I want this, and I'm hoping you do too. So let's look at our passage together. It's printed for you in the bulletin. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then jump down to verses 17. Exodus 20, uh, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word to us. So I want you to think about two things uh, this morning, two points related to the 10th commandment. One, the deadliness of discontentment, and two, the delight of contentment. First of all, the deadliness of discontentment. You know, you actually just heard it when we read the catechism earlier. Coveting leads to what the catechism says, discontent with our own estate. That's where coveting is going to take us, discontent with our own estate. So, So what is coveting? Coveting is sinfully desiring the good of your neighbor. Coveting is sinfully desiring the good of your neighbor. So it's, it's one thing to notice your neighbor's new car and the kind of wish you had one too. We've all done that. But it's another thing to nurse that thought and to nurse it and to nurse it until you are so thoroughly dissatisfied with your own car and you kind of resent your neighbor for his, right? 
That's coveting. Did you notice when we read the passage how specific that commandment is? <laughs> he says, don't covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, even his ox or his donkey. Before concluding, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. That, that covers it all, doesn't it? Then why in the world is he so specific in these, in these commandments? Well, of course, these specifics meant a lot more to the original audience, <laughs> Because these are the things they were actually tempted to covet or even scheme to take from their neighbor. Not many of us today are complaining to our wives, have you seen Zebediah's new donkey? Like, that's not where we're at. But more so, friends, I think the specifics are there to prevent us from trying to find loopholes. Trying to find loopholes around the commandments. From thinking things like, well, what if my neighbor's wife might be my true soulmate? And therefore, she'd be happier with me. No, no, the command says, still not allowed. Anything that is your neighbor's means anything. We don't covet generally. We covet specifically. And so, there are specific things, and this commandment is specific. Coveting, coveting really feeds off of entitlement. Entitlement of what we think we deserve or that we think we're entitled to. So if, if your coworker gets promoted, even though they're half as talented and work half as hard as you do, then watch out. Here comes coveting. It's fueled by others getting what you think they don't deserve and you not getting what you think you do deserve. Coveting is always asking the question, but what about me? Coveting feeds off of comparison. Who's richer? Who's prettier? Who's smarter? Who's funnier? Who's more accomplished? Who married up more? Whose kids are better? Whose life is more adventurous? And all streaming to us through our, through our smartphones, isn't it? It's a desire to have someone else's life. It's the comparison that leads to discontentment and ultimately to self-pity upon ourselves. See, what is it that makes discontentment so deadly? Well, first of all, it's only hurting you. I think that's fascinating. All the others, murder, adultery, theft, lying, they all hurt other people. Covetousness, coveting is a poison that's poisoning only yourself. It can destroy you from the inside. It's so deadly because it makes you unable to enjoy the good gifts that your neighbor has and unable to enjoy the good gifts you do have because you're only focused on what you don't have. Romans 12, 15 gives us the ideal of relating to our neighbor. Listen to this. Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know what coveting does? Coveting turns that on its head. See, your neighbor's rejoicing actually makes you weep. And then his weeping actually makes you rejoice. Secretly, of course. It's what the Germans called schadenfreude. You guys heard that word? Schadenfreude means the experience of pleasure, joy, or self-satisfaction that comes from learning of or witnessing the troubles, failures, or humiliation of your neighbor. That's where covetousness takes us. It's deadly. It's like a parasite. It eats all joy, satisfaction, and contentment out of your life. The Tenth Commandment has often been linked to the Fourth Commandment, 
about Sabbath rest. I love we've been singing so much about rest because that fits. You know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, which, ones have, which two have the longest descriptions? The Fourth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment, because I think they're connected. How can you give rest to your neighbor if you're always coveting what he has? How can you give rest to yourself? How can you experience rest internally if you're constantly clamoring for what you don't have? The Tenth Commandment has also been linked to the First Commandment. Remember way back when you started this, the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. It's called idolatry. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul calls covetousness in Colossians 3.5. Covetousness, which is idolatry. See, anything that's more important to you than God, anything that you must have, anything that you're willing to sin in order to have it, that's an idol. It's another God before God. So you see what's happening. The bookends of the Ten Commandments, number one and number ten, are saying the same thing. No other gods. Don't worship them. Don't sinfully desire them. Don't covet them. Brothers and sisters, finally, discontentment is so deadly. Because if you're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, we're really mad at God. Who is in charge of sovereignly dispersing blessings anyway? That's right. The great answer. God. Who is it that decides who gets what in this life? Is it not God? Ultimately, deep down, our discontentment is with Him. There's this play and an award-winning movie called Amadeus. Have you guys heard of this? It's a little old now. This story, it tells the fictionalized story of a rivalry between two famous composers. One was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and the other was Antonio Salieri. And Salieri was a devout person. He was a controlled, upright gentleman, but he was nowhere near the talent of Mozart. Mozart was superlatively gifted, and evidently Mozart was a superlative jerk. And in fact, Salieri was just good enough to know how much better Mozart was than he was. Did you hate that? But here's the thing. Salieri was, a, was a, a spiritual man. He was a godly man. He made music so the beauty of God could be heard in the world. And yet it seems that God had disregarded Salieri and chosen a different vessel for a higher beauty. This brat named Mozart. And this whole thing is about his covetousness, his envy of Mozart. And in this, in this scene, there's this really poignant moment where Salieri has this conversation with God. He says, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust Unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. Did you hear it? Salieri is not just mad at Mozart. He's mad at God. God, to him, is unjust, unfair, unkind. Here's all the diagnoses of discontentment, right? They're present here. Entitlement, comparison, inability to enjoy his neighbor's good, and utter dissatisfaction with his own lot. 
and it drove him crazy. Friends, this is the deadliness of discontentment. And it will drive us crazy too. Unless you can bring it to the one who you're actually mad at. You mean we can bring our covetousness to God no matter how unjustified it may be? Absolutely. Sometime this week, I encourage you to read Psalm 73. Psalm 73, the first half is basically a long rant about all the other people he's envious of. All the people who have a better portion of the good life, even though they don't deserve it. It's, it's so wonderfully and brutally honest that he brings his discontentment to God, and then by the end of the psalm, he leaves with a different perspective. The end of the psalm, Psalm 73, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. Do you know what that sounds like? It sounds like contentment. In the psalm, he goes from discontent to content. Do read it this week. But secondly, let's talk about how do we get there. From the deadliness of discontentment, how do we get to the delight of contentment? Well, first of all, let's talk about how not to get there. How not to get there, and I think this is important, is by labeling our desires as bad and trying really, really hard to escape or crush them. That's not going to work. Believe it or not, the Bible does not condemn all human desires. The goal of Christianity is not to achieve some sort of desireless estate, as in like Buddhism or Stoicism. We don't achieve contentment by disengaging from all of our desires. It's impossible. The Bible says that human beings are fundamentally desiring creatures. This is how God made us, and it's good the way God made us. In his book on the Ten Commandments, uh, one author says this. He says, desire is the combustible power that moves human life. Desire is the combustible power that moves human life. That's another way of saying what primarily moves you in life is what you love. It's your desires. You are what you love is the title of a great book on this very subject. See, human beings, we're not brains on a stick. We're not rational, purely rational creatures that move through this world based upon our thoughts. We are desiring creatures, and we act upon based upon what we love. So we can't just kill our desires to find contentment, because that would actually kill something in us that is fundamentally human. So what do we do? Well, theologians have talked about the idea of ordered versus disordered loves. Ordered versus disordered desires. In other words, the problem is not desire itself. It's that our desires are disordered towards the wrong ends. Does that make sense? So the aim is not to obliterate our desires, but to order them towards what actually satisfies. One commentator says this, The Bible doesn't doesn't teach us to master, control, or kill desire. Our desires are to mature so that our souls, brought to life by the Spirit, move us to pursue real treasure and eternal glory with passion. See, there's the trick. Our desires are to to mature. They're to move us to pursue what's real treasure. It's the awareness that the things that we are coveting of our neighbors are not the real treasure. 
As C.S. Lewis famously said, it's not that our desires are too strong, actually they're too weak. We are far too easily satisfied, Lewis says. We're settling for drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. See, this is, this, is what, this is what we're talking about. Reordering our desires to develop a taste for real treasure. How do we do that? This is what the old Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. This is how we order our desires, by the expulsive power of a new affection. There's a, there's a quote in the front of your bulletin, you can read it later, that explains it in more detail. But the principle is this. You can never expel an old affection unless it's replaced with something better. Or you can't get rid of these old desires unless it's replaced with something even better. It's the classic, you never really get over the old girlfriend until you get a new one. And the old affection can only be expelled by the power of something new. Therefore, our covetous desires can only be expelled by the power of a new desire for something that's truly greater. But what is this? What is this new affection that could, that could push everything out and reorder everything? Brothers and sisters, if you've been to this church, you know the answer. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, think about it. If there was anyone in this life who was entitled to the good life, who was it? Jesus. If there's anyone who truly deserved to have all the best things in this life, it was Jesus. Why? Because he was perfect. The only actual perfect human being. He never sinned. He perfectly loved God and neighbor. He, desi- he deserved to have everything. And yet, by comparison to his neighbors, he had it much worse. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. He had no beauty or majesty about him. He didn't even have a house to covet. The Son of Man didn't even have a place to lay his head. If there was anyone who ever had a right to ask in this life, but what about me? It was Jesus, and yet he didn't. Throughout his whole life, and especially at the end on the cross, Jesus took what he didn't deserve so that he could give you what you don't deserve. And that is the exact opposite of coveting. He took what he didn't deserve. My sin, your sin, our suffering, our shame, so that He could give you what you don't deserve, His righteousness, His acceptance, and His life. The Scriptures say, though He was rich, He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Friends, this gospel, this, brothers and sisters, is the greatest treasure the world has ever known. It's not hyperbole. It really is. If Christ is yours by faith, then you are the richest person who has ever walked this planet. You have everything you will ever need. And that is the only thing that fuels the secret of contentment. Remember the Apostle Paul I talked about earlier who said he found the secret of contentment? You know what it was? It was being in Christ. Here's what he said. He said, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. In other words, I'm in Christ. And therefore, everything that this is is mine, including His strength. 
Remember that psalmist in Psalm 73 who was airing his grievances about everything he didn't have compared to his neighbors? What changed the whole course of the psalm? Well, he realized that he had God. And therefore, if he had God, he has everything. In the end of Psalm 73, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, you learn to treasure God above all things because you were so convinced through the gospel that He treasured you above all things. That everything He did in Christ was to make you His treasure possession. This is the infinite joy, the only infinite joy that can truly satisfy. This is the expulsive power of a new affection. You know, eventually, uh, it's not going to be as hot here, and it's going to turn to fall. These leaves are going to change colors, and they're going to fall off from the trees. Do you know how that actually happens? I find this fascinating. It's not that the wind knocks them off or that the cold makes the leaves fall. You know, the tree actually pushes off the old leaves by a new living shoot that's coming in behind it that will replace it. I love it. That's the perfect picture of how this Christian life works. Entitlement, comparison, covetousness is actually pushed out by the new life that's growing in its place. It means there's simply no room for those old desires to remain. That's what we're talking about. The expulsive power of a new affection that allows us to live not disordered loves, but ordered loves. To love what true treasure is. One of the first times I encountered someone that, that really embodied ordered loves to me. I was staying with my best friend's family one summer in college. He was doing an internship, so I stayed with his, his folks. They were wonderful people, like a second family to me. I was working a, a youth minister job, and I was coming home uh, one, one afternoon, like four in the afternoon. I usually get home about an hour before anyone else. But I was rushing to get home that day because a massive storm was coming. They were saying, it's going to be terrible hail. It's going to be awful. And like the one treasured possession I had in my life was my car. And I was like, I'm going to get home first. Get this thing in the garage. It'll be safe. I get home an hour before anybody else, so it'll be great. So I get home. Uh, I rush in, pull in their garage, you know, put it down behind me. And as soon as I get inside, the bottom falls out of the storm, and it's massive hail. And I'm so happy that my car is inside the garage. Well... On this one day, their family decided to come home at the same time as I did. So like right when the hail was coming down, they were pulling in their driveway to open their garage to see my Toyota Camry sitting there and their car just getting pelted. I felt terrible, as you can imagine. Felt awful. My little 98 Camry was safe while their expensive, wonderful SUV was just getting destroyed. And I came to them, and I was, you know, effusive in my sorrow. I'm like, I'm so sorry my car's in the way. Can't we move them? And they said, Matt, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's ordered loves. It's just stuff. It's not a real treasure. It's fine. We have insurance. It's great. It's just stuff. Brothers and sisters, this 
is the freedom of contentment. This is the freedom of having ordered loves to desire real treasure. It sets you free to actually rejoice with those who rejoice when your neighbor gets something truly great. To weep with those who weep instead of the other way around. If your neighbor receives something amazing, you rejoice with him. You're free from covetousness. If your neighbor has something good taken away, you weep with them because you're free to weep. But this is the freedom, the freedom of a grateful life. Whatever else we do or we don't have, we have Christ, and Christ has us, and therefore we have everything. Let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, our, our hearts are laid bare before you. Our desires are known before you. None of our secrets are hid. Lord, you know the things we desire. You know the things we crave. You know, you know the longings and the way this distorts the way we relate to our neighbors. And Lord, we're sorry. And we turn to you and we ask to give us the expulsive power of a new affection. Lord, push out these old desires by something truly greater. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Everything he did for us on the cross and his life and his death, and his resurrection. And I pray that would be the pearl of great value that we sell everything else to have. Lord, reorder our loves, not for the stuff of this world, but for the incredible riches we have in Christ Jesus. We can't do it on our own. Give us your word and your spirit to help us. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.